He's the host with the most. And this is The Saturday Show with Edward Hayden. Now, sorry, good morning indeed. You're very welcome to the Saturday show. There's a mountain of gremlins in the system uh, here this morning. Edward Hayden here with you and delighted to be so and with you right through until 12 noon. And hopefully you're in a position to stay with me and us until then. Lots lined up on this morning's show, including our resident gardening expert, Charlie Lanigan, very shortly. We're going to be chatting all things um, environmental health officers with Blonnet Bergen, uh, known to us all from the business of food or offering hospitality business courses consultancy and online mentoring she's talking about the inconsistent application of the food safety laws um, so if you have any experience or queries uh, around that we'd love your contribution away to 336 we're going to be chatting all things Kilkenny Arts Festival as I said to Natalie we're going to be talking about the fact that three in four farmers would vote for a new farmers political party should one emerge and again this is uh, following on from um uh, an open conversation that's taking place with independent TDs, particularly Ross Common Galway TD, Michael Fitzmaurice. Um, who've openly discussed forming a political party. So, uh, again, lots uh, of conversation with Barry Murphy, the deputy editor of the Irish Farmers Journal, about that. Philip Shepherd is in to tell us about his upcoming auction. We're going to be chatting about Carlo Place names. And as well as all of that, we're going to be having a little bit of drama with the team from Cats Theatre Company ahead of their production of Patricia Burke Brogan's Eclipsed which is coming to the Watergate Theatre at the end of the month. I have that and lots more besides here on the show. Uh, your requests, greetings and dedications also will be coming to us. 083 306 9696. This is indeed our dinnersready.ie contact line uh, for all of your texts and contacts. The business show is here and the business of the day will take place. Now, before I go over to our resident gardening expert, a couple of uh, bits of housekeeping just to uh, attend to. Uh, uh, straight away. Um, I want to let you know that um, there is a concert, a special concert in aid of Butler Gallery on Sunday the 20th of August with drinks and canapes in the stunning Mount Juliet um, estate. So performing the world-renowned uh, musicians Maya Hamburg and Barry Guy. Tickets are available via the Butler Gallery website and of course all proceeds go to the Butler Gallery and um, that also shows a new exhibition from today uh, called The Art of Sport, bringing together lovers of art as well as sport. So happy to let you know about that. Also to let you know that uh, the Tullow Show will be taking place on Sunday, the 20th of August. We're going to be chatting about that uh, next week here on the Saturday Show. But if you're looking to uh, punctuate your diary, you can very happily punctuate it with that as well. It's always a great day out here um, in the area and the Tullow Show up in Carlo as well. Uh, I want to give a special request and greetings to um, the the son of my very good friends. Uh, it's Donna O'Brien who celebrated his birthday yesterday. He was one 
years old yesterday. One year old yesterday, excuse me. So, um, happy birthday, Donna, and good wishes to his mom and dad, uh, Catherine and Dennis, and his young brother, Senan, as well. So, good wishes to the O'Briens as well this morning. Uh, lots of texts coming into us nice and early this morning, but one that has taken my eye, and indeed it did take my eye in the paper, and our texter says, Edward would like to address the letter to the editor in the Kilkenny Observer yesterday relating to antics by some young individuals daily on High Street and the streets of Kilkenny. There is an absence of Garda on foot patrol for some time and uh, feel uh, if boots were on the street by Garda it would quickly prevent this and traders are being stressed out over the same and that's with thanks from a city trader and I did see that letter yesterday and read through it uh, in great detail and it spoke um, you know very very uh, cogently about the problems on High Street that are being experienced by not only traders but also um shoppers and, and, and general visitors to the city as well. So any thoughts you have on that, let us know OH3306 9696 but it was a very chilling letter uh, to the editor yesterday in the Kilkenny Observer. Did you see it? What are your thoughts on it? Let us know. We'd love to hear from you. Now, let's head over to the telephone line because on it we're joined by uh, our resident gardening expert, Shirley Lanigan, and Lacoon of Day will be able to contact her because she's coming to us live this morning from apparently a very windy Hare Island in West Cork. Shirley, good morning. A very windy Hare Island in West Cork, but uh, a, a sort of a grey one as well. What's it like in, in Carlow and Kilkenny? Well, Shirley, if I can tell you, I have a kind of a cheesecloth style shirt on me today that's very wet because when I came out to open my back gate this morning and get into the car, it was spilling rain in Great Namana. And as I drove out of Great Namana into Gorn and into Kilkenny, it was quite sunny. So, um... It's mixed in the county is the message, but it's a little bit grey here in Kilkenny, but fine in Kilkenny, but wet in Greg Manor currently is the message. And, and sort of foggy and grey here, but 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 dry. Um, it's dry. Dry. <laughs> now, of course, Shirley, before we get into the gardening element of it, Hare Island is the smallest and least populated of the the three main West Cork islands that people will be familiar off Baltimore. And Baltimore, of course, a uh, highly, uh, highly known spot down in West Cork. Yeah, oh, it's, it's a gorgeous part of the world. It really is. It's just beautiful. And when you're on the island, you're looking across that water and over to more land. But I cannot figure... I, I, no matter what direction I look, I can't figure out am I looking at Ireland or am I looking at Cape Clear or one of the other islands. I'm <laughs> Obviously, I know nothing about the sea, nothing about water, nothing about boats. All I know is that when you sit down in the boat, you get up and you're, you're invariably fairly, your seat is wet. <laughs> and Shirley, you're not far, am I right in saying, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, on Hare Island, you're not far from land, but yet you could be in the other side of the world. Yeah, it's, there's a little ferry that comes out and back and it takes about 15 minutes to go across, but you are very close to, you're very close to the mainland. So, you know, it's like an island, but you're not, it's not, it's not like an Agatha Christie island where you're completely cut off and they're not going to murder you. And surely there's a very small population down there as well, isn't there? Like living there permanently, an annual population. Yeah. Oh, I think they're down to mid-twenties or early-thirties. 
And then there's a lot of people, though, that have have houses here and they might have had them going way, way back and they come over and they spend a few months in the summer. But it, 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 I think it's just too bleak for a lot of people for 12 months of the year. And surely I'm going to be shocked and nosy as I often am. What's after taking you down to Hare Island? Is it business or pleasure? Are you on a little holiday or is this research? This, I know this is, this is a little holiday. There are no gardens. <laughs> the closest thing I've ever seen to a garden is there's a lovely little cottage close by and it's painted. It's a sort of a beautiful aqua blue, right? And one red gladioli, gladiolus, <laughs> growing up <laughs> against the wall is the closest I've ever seen to a garden here. There's, it's, it's far too windy. There's gorse. There's a few places they'll have a, a clump of hydrangeas in front of their, their house or something. And a few people might have a few herbs growing, you know, against a sunny wall. But it's basically, it's, it's gorse and a few wind-scalped um, pines or something. It's very, very... Very bleak, very beautiful, but you know. Look out your window there, Shirley, if you can, and paint us a picture. But you know what I can see? You know Jeremy Irons' famous pink castle? Yes. I can see that off in the distance. And it's pinker than usual because somebody told me that apparently it was recently, they render it. It's, it's rendered in a lime, a lime um, wash. And it's, 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 it's a new, fresh, new pink. It's very beautiful. Just a tiny little speck of pink off in the distance across the water. And I can see another little island and there's one, two, three, four little scalped, wind-scalped pines and uh, a ruined cottage and it looks gorgeous and then I can see all sorts of just tiny little bits of islands and there's a, there's a sailing school off in the distance and two little boats are out so obviously there's two people I think being given a lesson today they're sort of going around each other uh, in, 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 in the water in a nice sort of a shallow sort of quite sheltered little spot off in another distance and then it's basically whatever direction you look there's sea huge sky and uh, occasional uh, little cottages and all the cottages are small and the amazing thing is they nobody has built something away from the vernacular they all look perfectly like they belong here I think a lot of them were built in the 20s and they all face the same way because of the winds um, and the, the, so all of the, the, the roofs face the same direction and all of the gables face the same direction it's really interesting and they're all snug down into the, into the land there's nobody building anything up high that's going to get blasted by the, 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 the gales it's all very tucked into into little folds in the landscape how gorgeous it's really beautiful yeah it's beautiful and I presume you brought the hiking boots Shirley you'd be doing plenty of walking I, I I brought the hiking boots, but I'm in flip flops because I seem to be wet more often than dry. Okay. And and there are there's a sort of a, there's a little road that circles the island, but it's it's like grass. It's not just grass down the middle of the road. It's the whole road is grass, <laughs> and it's very nice to walk on. It's lovely and short, and there's blackberry bushes on either side. So you you don't you're, you're not there's no mad rush anywhere. It's a nice slow hike that you'll do and you'll be eating blackberries and then make it down to the shore where hardy soul might go in and have a swim but a more sensible one would sort of just walk along and, and pick up shells and that sort of thing. And now that was my next question. What category of that of those two do you fit into? 
do you want to have a guess? <laughs> I'd say I, I, I'd like to say you're going for the dip, but I feel you could be more the shell picker type. Uh, my pockets would be full of shells by the time I go home. <laughs> how gorgeous! How gorgeous! Well, listen, it sounds beautiful. Um, Shirley, it really does. Hope you uh, enjoy it and uh, perfect place for uh, for pondering and reflection, reflecting. Uh, back to our listeners now, Shirley. Um, now, I think we might have got this uh, texture before. Um, so correct me if I'm wrong, but a text says, Hi, Shirley, will you, um, will you please let us know how to get rid of ragweed? It's, take, it's taken over one of my flower beds. Uh, many thanks from JF. Now, did we think before that that might have been bindweed, Shirley? Or is there a separate well, thing? It, well, it, uh, well, ragweed, uh, every, everybody who lives out in the country will know about ragweed. I helped, I helped my, my, my dad get rid of it in a little field a few years ago. And what we did now, I mean, when I say a little field, I would say about a quarter of an acre of a field. But what we did was we went out, and you're going to love this, after the rain, you go out and basically you, you get it with you, the strongest gloves you have is what you need for this. If you've got old leather gardening gloves or odd leather gloves, use them. But basically you grab it from the base and use the, use the, 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 the weight of your body pulling backwards to lift it out of the ground. And basically that's why I got rid of it. <laughs> now, the easy ones are the big ones because you see them. But what you have to do is march back and forward over the space and where you see little small ones down to sort of like five, six inches tall, it's still very distinctive even when it's a tiny plant. Pull them. Now, if you don't have energy to do that, uh, at least go out and deadhead it before it sets seed this year. And then at a later date when, you, when, when the ground is again nice and, and, and wet and soggy and easily pulled out, go out and yank them out and it does work because that little field it's about three years ago and it's, it's, it's clear so that's, that's, that's how I did it and it works if you're talking about a bigger space you know just divide it off into right okay this year or this month I'm going to attack that, that much of it and as I said in the meantime deadhead and take away the, 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 the choppings and the clippings that you got, you, you've got and put them into the rubbish that goes off to um, the dump. Don't let it near your compost heap mm. and don't let it near animals because it's quite poison. But as I say, so get as much of it out from the root as you can at this juncture and in the meantime at least just deadhead the other stuff so that it's not going to spread wildly. If you've got it, if you even if you don't have it in your field, if it's, if it's on the ditch outside your, 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 your field, go and do the same thing there because if it's outside you know, it will blow in um, if you don't keep a, keep a close eye on it. So rid it, rid it with hard work. Um, perfect. Uh, and again, the, the, this uh, texture is talking about it in a flower bed. So again, it should be fairly oh, yeah. manageable to, to do that. If you can do uh, a quarter of an acre, there'll be no bother doing the, the flower bed. Uh, Shirley, another query. And because, it's a flower, because it's a flower bed, I take it the ground has been dug recently, so it'll be much easier to pull it out than, than it would be in the field. It won't be as established. Another text that came in during the week, Shirley, was with regard to, you know, that green algae-like substance that uh, you can see on the patios or concretes that's caused by washing flowers. So people are washing pots and vases and the devil knows what at the minute. But often there can be like that kind of uh, a green algae uh, substance after that. What is that or how would we rid it of that? Is that a kind of a deck brush job? It, yeah, deck brush and maybe uh, so a bit of vinegar 
water and vinegar, just scrub, 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 and let it dry off. Then maybe re- replace your plants there. What you should do with the plants is to start with would be a good idea. Make sure that they're all on saucers or trays. Okay. And that way, that way, the ground it stays stays drier. But it's it's a, it's a quickish job to do every so often. You'd have no bother with that at all. Some people, yeah, some people would use Jay's fluid, but I find the smell of Jay's fluid fairly uh, overpowering, and I think it kills a lot, a lot more than you than you you want to have killed. You know, where it runs off into the 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 the, the, the gravel or the soil beside your. Um, cemented area I would say it, it wouldn't be very friendly to the local wildlife whereas something weak like water and vinegar um, you know it will evaporate off and it's not it, it's a bit smelly but it's not as smelly as Jay's fluid Absolutely and Shirley as regards then August you know is a kind of a funny time uh, should we just be kind of looking at all of our hard work and enjoying it in August or are there any kind of August specific jobs that people need to be doing? Uh, just be, be looking at it and enjoying it. Uh, deadhead, 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 because for as long as you deadhead, while the plants are still going, they'll continue to generate flowers for mm. you right into September and October. So deadhead spend stuff. If you've got something that's completely uh, gone over, chop it down to the ground. And then things like, uh, say you've got uh, hardy geraniums and they were looking wonderful and they flowered beautifully for a few months and then they got very big and floppy and they're sort of lying all over the place. Catmint is another one of these things. Again, looked beautiful for a few months and it's now lying down. You've got, you've still got lots of green leaves but you've got spent flowers and everything around it is being flattened and laying on. Chop that to the ground, give it a good feed, and what you'll get is a nice sort of a fresh hummock of lovely new leaves. And if you're very lucky, maybe in September, you could get a few more flowers. But at least you've got a tidier looking plant. And then, if you've you've got, once you've done all of that, it's looking tidy, but you've got dank spots or spots that just you know, really need a bit of oomph. Go down to the garden centre, see what's coming into flower, and particularly if it's a perennial, because that's an investment plant, buy it and put it into that dull spot. Because you'll know then next August and September, I have something that I bought that's perennial that's going to look good in August and September. Oh, gorgeous, yeah. And enjoy it as well. I did a robust deadheading myself yesterday and an even more robust watering. I'm trying, I'm struggling, struggling valiantly uh, to try and keep everything, uh, everything in good nick. But uh, the, 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 the climate is, is uh, fighting against me, but I'm battling it on as best as I can. Do you know what would be nice? Um, uh, I'm thinking about the things that are beginning to look good now. Things like sedum. And sedum will give you blooms, and you can, you can get quite nice, low-growing ones that aren't going to get blown all over the place. You'll, you'll get blooms. The bees love them, and the butterflies absolutely adore it. So, if you're if you think you've got an area that's looking a bit dull now, uh, one or two plants of sedum. And the great thing about sedum is, it, if it's happy, it multiplies up, and in about two years' time, the one plant you'll be dividing into three or four and spreading out your clump so that you end up with a much more substantial um, plant. So look at your, the area that you say that you're, you know, you're trying to keep going and trying to keep looking nice and see if maybe Sedum Awesome Joy is the one I'm thinking of. It's got a lovely sort of a raspberry colour flower. And then there's another beautiful one where the leaves 
as well as the first, have a, a sort of a, a, a purple tinge to it. I cannot think of the name of the purple one, but ask for a purple sedum in the garden centre and they'll know. And so that, that, might be, that might be for you as well as everybody else. There you have it. I must check that out. Shirley, thank you so much. How gorgeous that we can be sitting in Kilkenny on the old Dublin road and you can be sitting in the wilds of Hare Island and we can still bring you to our listeners. That's the the joy of technology. Enjoy the, the rest of the weekend down there, Shirley. No doubt you will come home uh, replete uh, from the trip, but uh, enjoy it. Oh, ready to fight the weeds. There you have it. <laughs> Lacoon of day. See you, Shirley, and enjoy. Nice to chat with you. And uh, we're all very jealous of that nice, quiet space of Hare Island at the minute. But uh, for now, good morning. Thank you. Now, that's our lovely gardening expert, um, Shirley Lanigan, um, and she will be a rash, a rish, the shocked and shocked. And ish, thoughts, osbjog, aun, fun, and shocked, a rash, a rish, ikyan, kupla, no maid. This Saturday show with Edward Hayden. With thanks to Lyrath Estate, Kilkenny's luxury hotel. Perfect for spoiling yourself. More details on lyrath.com. Edward Hayden here with you on the Saturday show 0833069696 keep that it's our dinnersready.ie contact line for all of your texts and whatsapps lots still to come in this morning's show we're going to be looking at the Arts Festival here in Kilkenny which launched on Thursday evening we'll give you a whistle stop tour through its programme very shortly after 11 we're going to be joined by Barry Murphy who's the Deputy News Editor of the Irish Farmers Journal and he's going to be telling us that now three in four farmers would vote for a new Farmers political party should one emerge and their um, support and the rating of Minister for Agriculture Charlie McConnellogue has fallen, fallen significantly with only one in five farmers believing that the minister is doing a good job in a Galesport from the farmers has also fallen it's down four percent as well so um we look forward to going through the minutiae of that with Barry a little bit later on. But before all of that, I'm delighted to be joined on the telephone line by Blonid Bergen from the Business of Food. And of course, the Business of Food, if you check them out online, uh, both on social media and on their website, they offer hospitality business courses, consultancy and online mentoring by its um, patron, Blonid Bergen, who joins us now on the line. Blonid, good morning to you. Good morning, Edward, and thank you for inviting me on. It's a pleasure to invite you on because I've been following you for the last couple of weeks. Well, obviously, I've been following you for the last couple of years, but I've been following your um, current debacle, shall we say, for the last couple of weeks. And I think, Blanet, it would be fair to say, uh, in the country terms, you have a bit of a bee in your bonnet. (laughs) I have quite the bee in my bonnet, yes. Uh, Would you like me to introduce what I've been talking about? Yeah. yeah, I, I'm happy to do either because, uh, of course, many of our listeners this morning who are perhaps in um, food businesses of varying types and varying hues will be familiar with the kind of the malady that can be the environmental health officer and the visit from same. And I, I just took one line that I thought was really pertinent from your um, from your um, contribution the other day and you said you weren't talking about those that are fast and loose with the rules but about those who are doing their best and I think Blonnet we both concur that the vast majority of people working in food are doing their best but uh, you're saying that there's inconsistent application of the food safety laws Yes so um, the, so I, I this isn't my first time to bring up this subject I have been talking about this for uh, the best of part of a decade now and, and even more than that because it, with my work out in the business with restaurants and hotels or whatever 
I'm hearing, I have been hearing consistently from the restaurant and hotel and cafe owners that the environmental health officer's interpretation of law is different with every single individual. So I did get a response from, or a comment from the Food Safety Authority and from a serving EHO, actually, uh, during the week. And both of them emphasised that it's about compliance, not support. Now, I would argue, surely they should support people to be compliant, not terrify people mm. into, um, you know, I mean, people are absolutely terrified of environmental officers, and that is not okay from any kind of inspector from the uh, on the part of the government so um what happens and i suppose one of the other points that the fsai made to me was that uh you know each business is different what i'm talking about is that environmental health officers have a different interpretation of the law in the same business so you have, and I've said this on my on my videos, uh, you have Mary who comes in today and she finds everything, well, she, they never find everything okay, which puzzles me greatly, but they'll always find something wrong, which which stresses people to the gills. But anyway, uh, she'd come in and say, you know what, that's fine, well, you know, here's a little list of things you need to do. And then John or Paul or whatever comes in the following month, uh, maybe they've somebody's on holidays, and they say, oh no, that's not okay, this is the way I want you to do it. Now, we're talking about the same food laws, but we're talking about a totally different interpretation. And it is. And the other thing that has consistently come up, particularly in private messages that I've got an avalanche of, is the um, disrespect with which people are treated in their own businesses. And that's not OK either. And I'm really cross about it. And I've been talking about this, as I said, for many years. I grew up in a business myself. We food business in our pub. I ran it for a number of years. And uh, I know how hard people work in business and they put their lives on the line. They put their livelihood on the line. They're trying to make money. They're creating jobs. They're um, contributing to the economy. And this kind of behavior by environment, some environmental health officers, let me stress that, mm. some of them. But there are enough of them behaving in a very erratic way for people to be ultra stressed in their businesses. Now, remember that the environmental health officer is one of about 15 inspectors that come into the business. So, you know, anybody who's selling cardboard boxes or boots or whatever, you know, just remember, if you had 15 inspectors coming into your business over a period of 12 months, you know, it's a lot to deal with. It certainly is. And I think, you know, I, I would probably concur with much of what you've said in terms of, you know, for many, you know, the EHOs can be intransigent and, uh, in terms of, you know, unwilling to kind of to change the views. I'm really taken uh, and impressed by, by, by what your earlier comment was with regard to, you know, um, assisting them or supporting them to be compliant because, you know, no business and particularly no food business planet, um, I think it's fair to say, would be homogenous in terms of, you know, either its approach or its output or its practices, you know. So again, it's to kind of to see what's there and see, you know, surely to see how they can best uh, ensure compliance um, around uh, what it is that they're doing. Yes, and the other, I've, I've been sort of trying to join the dots on this for the last few weeks. And the other thing that is, to me, is the most exceptionally worrying thing of all is that the the people who are doing everything from scratch, so they're making their own cakes, you know, they're making their own lasagnas and things, they seem to be, uh, they seem to be having a particularly hard time. Uh, 
Mm. Now, if you were given to conspiracies, which I'm not, you would be wondering why there is this push, on the one hand, by our tourism bodies and by Bordia, who all do a great job pushing our island as a food island and the green island and the clean island. And then on the other hand, we have a number of people who are saying, no, no, you can't bake that cake. You need to buy it in from somebody who makes it in a factory. Mm. So I'm, 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 I'm worried about this because we are, if you look at, you know, the amount of processed foods that are absolutely, uh, with the supermarkets are awash with processed foods. And uh, I'm just worried that we are going to, on a, we are sliding towards a food industry which is going to be dominated by processed foods where we have wonderful foods in Ireland. We have extraordinary food in Ireland and we have wonderful artisan food producers uh, we have people growing wonderful vegetables and fruit. And, you know, there is this push. I don't know whether it's a push or whether it's mm. individuals. But if it's the law, there's something wrong with the law. If the law is trying to stop people uh, preparing really good quality food that's come from their own gardens or that's come from, you know, the, the farmer down the road or the cheesemaker down the road, there's something there's something else happen you know wrong there and doing it let it be said doing it let it to be said to a high yeah, standard yeah. we'll come back yeah. in just a second Blonnet to um, you know the control systems that are in place that we all know well as HACCP and obviously HACCP, the cost of, right. of, of implementing that but just for our listeners this morning maybe that are not intrinsically involved in the food gig uh, you might be able to kind of uh, shed light if for example I had a food business and you know the EHO came in and gave me all my recommendations and I didn't adhere to them or I didn't try to adhere or implement or, or appeal them in some way. What are the kind of the repercussions or the ramifications of such behaviour, um, Blonid, in your findings? Well, well, you know, th- there are food uh, businesses out there that are, have behaved appallingly and if you've got a very dirty kitchen and you have, you know, sort of insects in that in the kitchen, then you mm. deserve to be closed. There's no doubt about that. But the other thing is that people in the industry have the right to say to somebody, uh, you know, I wonder if you might just let me know where does that in the legislation because uh, there is um, there are cases where people are being asked to do something which actually isn't a food law it is an interpretation of the food law by somebody who wants them to do it their particular way so I had a long message from a restaurant owner in County Kildare runs three restaurants very well respected and in the industry a long time and he said that one of his one one person who came in had a thing about cooked rice and wouldn't let him cook rice another one had a thing about their pea puree she said that it was it wasn't um, it was taking five minutes too long to cool down another one had a thing about uh, labeling everything and dating and signing and tracking and so he said every time somebody came in they had a different kind of um, a, a different take on it but from the point of view of the public I suppose they they probably need to be assured that businesses that are dirty and are flouting the law are definitely being sanctioned by the Food Safety Authority and what will happen is if you continue to ignore an order say to clean up your kitchen uh, you will be closed probably temporarily and, and that's and that's okay Oh 100% uh, but, uh, 
Yeah, but I'm, as I said, you said at the beginning of this conversation, this isn't about those people who are doing it wrong. It's about people who are really trying hard to do it right. Trying their hard and, and uh, as you said, you know, barriers upon barriers being put in front of them. Uh, Blonde, as you're out and about dealing with, with businesses and, and offering great support and consultancy to businesses, so you'll have, I'm sure, a, a, breath, of, a, a breath of answer for this. But the cost of implementing these recommendations, you know, you're talking, you know, uh, even something as simple as all of the labelling and all of the admin around that you know that can be the cost of personnel but in many cases you know you know you're uh, advised or required to be kind of making you know a significant um, financial investment to your business that you as a business owner may not necessarily concur with the need for yes and you may also not have the money so this is another thing that that infuriates me is the way somebody who's coming in on a weekly wage that is absolutely guaranteed will say you need to buy a piece of equipment which is going to cost you ex- usually thousands of euros. Uh, instead of saying, you know, can we sit down and look at the protocols here and see is there any other way that we can do this to save you buying that piece of equipment? Because in most cases, businesses won't have that money. And again, it's simply not fair to do that. Uh, I had another business owner who runs a number of restaurants in in, uh, County Limerick, and uh, they were doing this um, burger for which they are justly famous. And uh, this person is a really good operator and in business for quite some time. And eventually so many barriers were put in the place of them trying to do these burgers that they dropped them completely from the menu. Now, they have a fully equipped industrial kitchen, uh, all the hassle protocols in place, and it was just... We need another. You need another piece of equipment. You need another piece of equipment. So they just dropped from the menu. So, in fact, uh, Edward, if you take this to its logical conclusion, it is general public who are eventually going to be this, the uh, ultimate um, losers in this, because the kind of foods that we love to eat, the ones that have real flavour, I'm I'm really really afraid that they're going to slowly disappear. And we all know countries, and I'm not going to mention them, um, where this has happened. And you no longer have the opportunity to buy really good food unless you are really well off. Absolutely. And uh, I used I used the word in a different context a few moments ago, but there is a risk that we're at, we're at risk of uh, entering into a situation where all of the food is going to be homogenous and there's not going to be variance from, from place to place in terms of, you know, local or regional uh, either dishes or uh, indigenous uh, ingredients to that that region as well. Blonnet, in, in terms of this, what, what do you think is, is, is missing from the jigsaw? So this is obviously a, a kind of a, a jigsaw that you, that you buy in a charity shop with one piece or two missing. What is the missing piece? Is it kind of to go back to the drawing board with those that are legislating to kind of to look at that? To, is it to look at the role of the EHO and what kind of advocacy um, they could provide to businesses or what do you think is needed to kind of to straighten up this malady I think both of what you've just said now I would agree absolutely with both of those points uh, I think there is a conversation needed between people in industry you see the, the people in industry and the people who, ma- who make and in, enforce actually uh, another uh, person said to me recently it's about enforcement which is a really strong of course. it's an aggressive word isn't it it's a very aggressive word, yes. Uh, but I also think that, uh, you know, the, this fear of putting your head above the parapet, I can't tell you how many messages I got privately where people said, please don't use my name. 
Like, what's that about? You know, that you're frightened that somebody will then come down and have a sort of personal vendetta against you because you put your head above the parapet. Mm. And both the FSAI and this person, the CHO who contacted me, said, you have the right to complain. People are terrified to complain. Of course. So there definitely needs to be a conversation where the Food Safety Authority recognise, first of all, that this is a problem and that it's been a problem for a long time and that owners are really stressed about it. Um, you know, particularly this woman, uh, this other lady contacted me. I have an email from her and she said she's doing everything from scratch. She has a cafe and uh, she's in business over 30 years. And she said she felt belittled, frightened and bullied by her EHO. That's shocking. And she said to the point where uh, she, and I have her name, I have her name of her business and everything, uh, to the point where she no longer will meet the EHO on her own. She has to have a senior member of staff with her so that, to support her. So, uh, as I said, the first thing that needs to happen is that the Food Safety Authority of Ireland recognise that this is a problem with some of their employees. Uh, it's shocking and I, I can I can see why people would feel like that and Blonet I think putting this issue aside and parking that for a moment I, I'm sure you'd agree with me perhaps not but food um, business owners and those that are working in the food industry are under pressure aside from that there's a multiplicity of, of, of pressure points that they're currently trying to battle and this is you know another headache on top of all of those things because it's a tough it's a tough place to reside at the minute um, I, I think It is very difficult and this is the other thing that really seems to completely escape inspectors who come into a business is the multitude as you said of bills that have been mounting uh, you know it's not a secret that electricity bills have gone through the roof all mm. utility bills have gone through the roof food prices have skyrocketed now there's probably another conversation to be had around that about whether or not some of those are legitimate but that's a conversation for a different day uh, so every single uh, price uh, has gone up. Every single cost has gone up. This is another. Let me give you a small example. Uh, so businesses are obliged, not obliged, but there's a thing called um, uh, a probe. You know it. Uh, you know, and it has to be recalibrated. Of course. Uh, so some environmental health officers will insist that that's sent away calibration, which can cost up to 150 euro. Now you can calibrate it, as everybody knows in the business, by dropping it into hot boiling water. So, uh, but, but some of them would say, oh, no, that's not okay. It's perfectly okay. But that's another expense. And then some of them will say, you have to send away that for testing. That's another expense. Mm. It may be only €150 Euro to the EHO, but it could be the straw that breaks the back of the restaurant. And it's an unnecessary so expense. Unnecessary, completely unnecessary expense. So the other thing I, I would advise owners who might be listening this morning to do two things. First of all, to um, educate themselves on the legislation, which is on the Food Safety Authority of web, uh, website. Uh, also to educate themselves on what they can and can't do under the laws. And then if a, an EHO comes in and asks them to do something which they clearly know is not necessary, ask them to be shown the legislation where it says that. Mm. And there's, you know, there, you have to be polite with people as well. There is absolutely no need for people to be aggressive either it works both ways um, and uh, the other thing is that owners can do is to point out to the EHOs that they're looking for them to support them in with with compliance rather than it being um, you know an aggressive thing 
And they also, to be absolutely frank, uh, Edward, they need to come into people's kitchens uh, dressed like people in kitchen dress. Yeah. Not in high heels and jewellery. And, you know, we all know how we need to be dressed in a, in a commercial kitchen. For sure. Blonnet, there we must leave it. Uh, before I go, yeah. I must um, give you just a flavour of some of the texts that are coming in. So you've certainly uh, you've certainly aroused a, 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 a listening uh, population this morning. Uh, Edward, the French food approach is so refreshing. Great local markets and no hang-ups about regulations. Great topic. Well done, says Mark. Another texture, again, uh, slightly different, but in a similar vein, says, Hi, Edward, I totally agree with Blonnet about the food safety interpretation. The same applies in farming and the inspections there are the same. It's the most stressful day for anyone. I know they have to be done, yeah. but what each inspector uh, expects you to do is ridiculous and without consistency. Blonnet, it's a topic hopefully we might revisit um, in the in the future. I but keep you, I keep you all day. Edward. I have no <laughs> doubt. And, and I, you, it's always so lovely to chat. People can check you out on social media and on your website, The Business of Food. And um, there's great information and great advice uh, there as well. And of course, you uh, do work individually with hospitality businesses uh, as well. And Thank of course, so much, and Thank you, Blonnet, and good morning to Thank you. Thank you for your time. Thank you. I appreciate it. Now, Blonnet Bergen, they're telling us all about that. A uh, lot to take in. Let's take a break. KCLR. Now, it's all fall share rash. Lots of conversation, of course, about what Blonnet Bergen was telling us there with regard to the inconsistency, in her opinion, with regard to the application of food safety laws. Uh, text coming in here now, wait till I just uh, distill this text. There's, there's a couple of texts coming in um, with regard to... Actually, I will distill it and I'll come back to it after 11 because it does need a bit of distilling. But that's with regard to letter that was in uh, the Kilkenny Observer newspaper the other day. There was a letter to the editor, a name and address with the editor, but just talking about, um, I suppose, antisocial behaviour on the high street by a number of people as well. Uh, a texter saying it's not good for encouraging students and uh, shocking to see people running amok on the streets in Kilkenny as well. So let us know your thoughts on that, 083-306-9696. Now, those that may be running amok on the street of Kilkenny in a very artistically uh, creative way are, of course, the uh, participants of the Kilkenny Arts Festival. And I'm delighted to be joined by programme manager Margie Keeley uh, in studio to give us a little whistle-stop tour through the programme. Margie, good morning to you. Good morning. Thanks for having me. A pleasure to have you. I was saying to you uh, in a jocular fashion during the break that you can breathe out now, but uh, perhaps not so. No, I think the breathing will come on Tuesday week. (laughs) Yeah, we just need to get through this one. (laughs) Uh, Absolutely. Listen, uh, congratulations first and foremost. It's the 50th anniversary of uh, the Kilkenny Arts Festival, this year's festival celebrating 50 years of the dreams and, and discoveries. I was just saying to you during the break that I was really impressed at the launch the other night um, with Olivia O'Leary who launched it. Now, of course, a neighbour of ours down in Greg Namana, so we're already on the on the fan base. But she was talking about, I suppose, the accessibility to the Kilkenny Arts Festival and particularly, I suppose, in my opinion, in the last year, it has become increasingly um, accessible for everybody. People can dip in or dip out of it and there doesn't have that sense of it being elitist and people feel that they can't you know immerse themselves in some aspect of it Mm -hmm. I suppose I mean festivals always evolve you know especially when artistic directors change Um, it certainly had maybe more of a focus on classical music in the past and it has maybe evolved past that but we still 
we still have that strong classical program and I do think like every every person who comes to the arts festival can have a completely separate experience because you can you can only go to the classical events or you can only go to the theatre events or you can just go to Clears and see some rock music you know there's there's so much going on that I do think it's it's completely dependent on what a singular person chooses on their experience you know so it is really broad and I think it's been broad for years but yeah for sure. Now, you, of course, have been involved in, uh, I suppose, the, the, the curation of this year's festival in mm-hmm. terms of putting together the, the, the very comprehensive and uh, very eclectic um, programme content. Give us a little bit of a tour through, uh, through some of the, the hot spots. Sure. So um, I suppose as per as per usual, our music programme is kind of the big, the big bulky part For of sure. it. So we kicked off on Thursday there with Umu Sangari, which was incredible. There was people so dancing heard. in the aisles of St. Canice's Cathedral, which was which was a really special moment. And last night we had Phil Selway and the ICO, who's the drummer of Radiohead. That was a beautiful gig. Um, we also, our, our really important piece this year is Migration Sonata. So we've been working with the migrant community in Kilkenny. And that's in the Watergate, in the, the Watergate. lovely Watergate, yeah. yeah. So we've been working with them for a couple of months preparing this dance piece with John Scott from IMDT. And I went to the preview last night. It was just so moving. And we have another showing of it today at half two in the Watergate. So I would highly recommend going along to that. It's just a spectacular piece of dance. Tell me how that works. Is it, uh, is it uh, I suppose, a conflation of music and dance and lyrics or is it predominantly movement? I suppose it's it's kind of predominantly movement, but what John did with by where a lot of the the people we're working with are from the Ukrainian community. Okay. So John worked with the Ukrainian people in like the, their language. So a lot of it is kind of based around little monologues in Ukrainian, and then but then there's also like a Brazilian dancer, and she speaks in Brazilian, and it's it's just kind of like a shared experience. It is mostly movement, but there's also a beautiful soundtrack going on in the background, which is very emotional and. Yeah, it's 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 a, a piece beautiful to, piece. A piece to see. Mm-hmm. Um, theatre, of course, is is always the first section that I go to in the programme, mm-hmm. uh, in particular Grau for the theatre. And that's well represented uh, with both Barnstorm Theatre and the Kilkenny Arts Festival combining for the Bench Tales, mm-hmm. which is um, voyeuristic theatre. <laughs> we're kind of, we're watching in, we're looking in. Yes, if you've ever wanted to... Uh, to be a bit creepy in the bushes and spy yeah. on people, this is your chance. So it's legitimate chance. A legitimate. Oh yes, not not a bad one. <laughs> um, yeah, this is a really really interesting piece. So it's it's like it's a it's a big long walk around the castle park basically, but you stop at three separate benches. You're given binoculars and you tune in on your headphones on your phone and and you're you're away from the bench. The actors are on the bench and you, you basically just kind of eavesdrop. Yeah, eavesdrop on their conversation. What we all do in the castle exactly. anyway. <laughs> I mean, I go there every lunchtime to eavesdrop. <laughs> so it's yeah, that's going to be really special. And then, of course, we have um, Asylum doing the local out in Ennisnag, which That's is... Right. I went to the preview the other night and I've just never experienced anything like it. It's, I have tickets for next Friday. I'm oh, really looking forward to it's it. It's just, it's such an experience. And it's like, it gives you this feeling of nostalgia for that time in the 90s as well like it's a whole experience it really is special Absolutely Talk to me then about art you know a lot of kind of people pop up you know particularly local and national people pop up the, the kind of the presence of art in the programme mm-hmm. So our, our primary visual artist this year our artist in residence is Deirdre Frost this incredible Cork painter so yeah we've built this festival gallery in St. Kieran's College and her exhibition called Big Crush was just launched yesterday and she's actually speaking about it with Christy Each in the Prairie Tower today. It's a stunning collection and it's selling fast so I would pop down to, to have a look if you're around St. Kieran's. The Chamber Orchestra and the Chamber Choir are back to us as well and they're mm-hmm. all uh, always uh, well appreciated and well supported. Absolutely, yeah. Because big 
big pieces, aren't they? Big pieces. I mean, yeah, the ICR are coming to do Beethoven's Fifth, which is like one of the most iconic pieces of classical music. But also like in the same concert, they're doing a piece from Linda Buckley, who's like a young Cork composer. So it's a really varied programme, but yeah, definitely, definitely our big classical hitter. And talk to me then about, you know, what has become really popular in the last few years, Margie, is the lunchtime concert series. Mm. These are always, you know, highly sought after. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. So we had Camerata Kilkenny doing one yesterday and we've Camerata in today doing one. And then we have the beautiful Carducci Quartet coming back to do a couple this week. Um, and yeah, also kicking off today, we have our Secret Garden music series, which is always... Just Tune into the social huge, media. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a huge festival highlight. So we're in, and we have a special extended edition today in Lyratha State at 4 pm. So it'll be about half an hour, and it's a very, very special guest. I'm excited for this one, but I can't tell you what it is. <laughs> uh, listen, Margie, not only am I impressed with the program, I'm impressed with your uh, ability to recall the program with no <laughs> prompt sheets in front of you. I'm really impressed. Uh, Olivia O'Leary, of course, the other night was talking about Irla O'Leonard, uh, Cormac McCarthy, and Matthew Burrell. Uh, who are coming to the set theatre. So the set always is that kind of a bit of a funky vibe for the arts festival, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, we, we use it for a lot. I mean, last night it was banging. We had Donald and Ian doing a DJ set uh, and it was really, really fun. So yeah, that's that Irla gig is going to be really special and it's nearly, nearly sold out. So if you want to come... Get your tickets get your very tickets. quickly. Uh, Martin <laughs> Hayes, of course, is uh, almost festival favourite at this stage, uh, closing the festival. Yeah, we're so lucky to have... He's such a legend and he comes back every year so he he's doing his usual big festival finale at the end with loads of guests from across the festival um including Ethan Evrian and Colin Dunn who are doing open rehearsals in the Home Rule Club so it's it's going to be a special finale and he's also doing a gig in the Watergate with Kate Ellis so that's like you know it's traditional meeting contemporary classical it's just a beautiful merging of of souls and time precludes us from talking at length about the poetry element of it but mm. lots of poetry at this year's festival as well yeah and a, a particular emphasis on Heaney so there's three Heaney translations going on in the Prairie Tower and I would highly recommend them Signpost is where we can find out the full programme so if you go to kilkennyarts.ie the full programme is there or you can call into our box office on John Street or our memories event on High Street and there'll be programmes available there Marjorie Keeley Programme Manager thanks so much we're going to take an ad break and news coming very shortly this Saturday show with Edward Hayden. KCLR. With thanks to Lyrath Estate, Kilkenny's luxury hotel. Perfect for spoiling yourself. More details on lyrath.com. Now, good morning. You're very welcome back. 0833069696 is our dinnersready.ie contact line. A uh, couple of texts in here as well. It says, uh, good morning, Edward. Can you say hello to John and Nula? And uh, that's from Mags. And they live down in Kinsale. And she hopes to uh, see them soon uh, there as well. Now, uh, another uh, texture uh, has been on. It says, Edward, it would be a pity if the wonderful food our farmers produce in Ireland were to fall down when it's served out uh, to people eating, etc. As the texture said, so many inspections now and rules for uh, producers as well. So um, that is very much the case as well. Also, we opened this morning's show talking about a letter to the editor in yesterday's Kilkenny Observer about the antisocial behaviour taking place on predominantly High Street in Kilkenny is where the, the, the letter writer uh, suggested a texture... Um, uh, has sent us a, a lengthy text, some of which uh, I'll bring you, and said that it's absolutely scandalous um, that uh, people are destroying life 
for people and tourists in Kilkenny. Um, there is CCTV in High Street, says our texter uh, there as well. Our, our texture there as well so um, that is that so I suppose they're talking about uh, people being complained and cycling dangerously on the footpaths in Kill in Kilkenny um, there as well so um, that's basically it another texture says Edward I want to wish Dennis Roach and his lovely bride Nisha all the best on their wedding today in Rahana and that's from Anne Whitford um, as well so thank you to Anne for that uh, message as well um, and keep your text coming in another texture says um, have you listened Edward to the song Breathe Easy from Stephanie a lady from Cork the word so true uh, for those who are suffering illness and that's with um, thanks from Anne as well I haven't heard that Anne but I must check that out as well now let's head over to the telephone line we're joined on it by Philip Shepherd, proprietor of Shepherd's Auction House in Doro Philip good morning to you Good morning to you. How are you doing, Edward? I'm very good. Thanks for taking our call. Um, Philip, you have um, a very special sale coming up uh, from the the magnificent Knox St. Lure. Am I correct in pronunciation? Um, House um, near Cashel. Yeah, just at the edge of Cashel. Cashel, just about a half mile from Cashel on the old Cork Road as you head towards Rockwell College. And uh, it's a beautiful house and we're selling the entire contents of the house. And uh, there's some exciting things in it. Probably the most outstanding piece in it is a replica of the Resolute Desk. And the Resolute Desk is one that's in the Oval Office in uh, the White House in Washington, D.C. And it was originally gifted by Queen Victoria to President Rutherford Hayes in 1880 and was made from uh, oaks uh, from a ship called HMS Resolute that the Americans rescued. It was part of a Arctic exploration ship. When they broke it up then, they made this test from it and Queen Victoria presented it to the American people and has been used by successive presidents, including President Kennedy and more recently President Obama and Trump. How gorgeous. Uh, Tell us what we can uh, see then at the auction, Philip. Well, you've got a whole range of of, uh, furniture, you've got rugs, you've got pictures, everything you would expect in a decent-sized Irish country house. Um, there is an incredible uh, in the hall there's an incredible marble specimen table French Empire style it's got different marbles on the top and it's got a border with a Greek uh, key scroll on it and it's supported on a column and the column is a, a, a temple uh, with um, columns on, on around surrounding the temple and in the centre is a figure of uh, Hebe the, the Greek goddess of youth and uh, the whole thing then terminates on claw and ball seas. It's extraordinary. It's a 19th century version of one. In the 18th century, when they used to go on the Grand Tour, they would make these specimen top tables and ship them back then to Ireland or Britain, and the local cabinet maker would make the base to support for them, and that's what it is. So that's why it's quite so spectacular. And there is... Uh, yes. Sorry, Philip. I was just wondering, um, why why uh, would, would somebody kind of go to this stage of, of selling this? Is somebody moving on or just uh, this, downsizing? Yeah, no, this is, this is, uh, this is, is, is an executor sale. Uh, the, the owner's deceased 
and we're selling the contents of the house is actually up for sale at the moment. Okay. It's currently for sale. So that, that's sort of, and there's a whole collection that was put together over a lifetime, which makes it really interesting. Yep. And uh, he was a kind of ours going back, I would say, 40 years. I remember him from 40 years ago. How gorgeous. So, um, yeah, and there's, there's a, an interesting 18th century Dublin long place clock in it by Christopher Clark. And that dates to about 1780, that kind of time. Um, yeah, no, that, that, that's, that, that's what this is. So everything in the, in the, in, in the house is, is for sale. And Philip, who would, who would this uh, uh, be attractive to? Is this kind of general homeowners or is it people with larger homes or is it uh, antique dealers and collectors or who do you think will be kind of uh, kicking the tyres at, at the auction? Yeah, I, I think a little bit of all of those sort of things. There's certainly pieces in that people might want to add to a collection. Uh, but there, there, there are bits and pieces for everybody in it. It's a very broad spectrum thing. It's a big house. I think there are seven bedrooms, and there's also an apartment down at the base, and a two-bedroom apartment or, uh, uh, um, at, at, at the base of the house. Um, and then there's garden furniture in it as well. There's even a ride-on mower. So everything you would expect sort of in, in a house, the, the good, the bad, and the ugly, it's all, it's all there. So there's a whole, a whole spectrum of things. Something for everybody, I would say. And people uh, and can go. People can go and view it this Saturday and Sunday, and the sale taking place next Tuesday at your own auction rooms in Doro, Philip. That's correct. And it's going to be broadcast live online. The entire catalogue is live online at the moment at shepherds.ie. So you can go in and see the photographs, descriptions, everything on it. But it is open to the public. It's one of the first public viewings that we've had uh, post COVID, uh, because obviously during that period we couldn't have them at all. So, um, yeah, there's a lot of people excited. It's, it's a nice sort of a day out as well. It doesn't cost nothing to go there. Of course. And we all love a route around That's someone's house, don't we, Philip? We all, we all love a gawk. A wee gawk. A wee gawk. There's nothing like a gawk. <laughs> Philip, listen, thanks so much uh, for telling us about that. It's in Knox St. Lure House in the magnificent home uh, near Cashel, the beautiful Cashel, of course, in County Tipperary. That's uh, open uh, today and tomorrow with the auction as you said taking place just remind us once again Philip of the website where people can find out the fuller details of the of the lots and uh, what's available so our, our website is shepherds.ie s-h-e-p-p-a-r-d-s dot i-e everything is on it there you just go in and click and you can actually search by you want to look up a table it'll pull up Sorry, and I've I've just dropped uh, Philip there. Apologies, that's my own uh, that's my own error. Um, Amy, you might give Philip a call back and tell him that I that I that I did that inadvertently. Uh, thank you. That's Philip Shepherd, of course, proprietor of Shepherd's Auction House in um, Durrow, and telling us about that magnificent sale at Knox and Lure House uh, in near Cashel in County Tipperary. You can check that out at um, Shepherd's.ie. Now let's head over to the telephone line because on it we're joined by Barry Murphy who's the Deputy News Editor of the Irish Farmers Journal and he's telling us about a new report that was launched during the week talking uh, about the fact that three in four farmers would vote for a new farmer's political party should one emerge. Barry, good morning to you. Good morning, Edward. Thanks for having us. Uh, thanks so much for taking uh, the call. We appreciate it on a Saturday morning. I know it's not always convenient, so we, we do appreciate you uh, giving freely of your time. Uh, this is something that's kind of being led uh, by Roscommon Galway TD, Michael Frismaris, who has always been uh, quite robust, if you like, in terms of his uh, dull interjections with regard to the farming community. But um, there seems to be unrest and particular... Um, 
uh, lack of support rating with regard to the current Minister for Agriculture, Charlie McConnellogue. Tell us about the minutiae of this uh, of this study, Barry, if you would. Yeah, you've hit a few parts of it there, Edward. I suppose the main aspect of it is this support for a farmers' party um, with three and four or 72% of farmers surveyed by the Irish Farmers' Journal were saying that they would give it their first preference vote in the next election if um, there was such a party available. Now, it's important to, to note for listeners as well that um, this is not about to say that the Farmers' Alliance Party, they shaped up there at the beginning of the week. They um, kind of announced that they would be running candidates, but this poll was conducted before that party was on the table, say. Um, but nonetheless, this was, it does show support for a farmers' party if one was to form. Um, and you're right in saying, look, Michael Fitzmaurice, TD, has been kind of at the face of this, um, but he's more humming and hawing about it at the moment, uh, you could say. Um, speaking to the Farmers' Journal yesterday, he was saying that unless a party, a rural party is what he's calling it, he's saying it can't just be a farmers' party. It needs to broaden out on focusing on rural issues as well as agricultural issues. Um, unless one of those is formed, he won't be running as an independent in the um, the next uh, election, he'll walk away from his doll seat. Is what he's saying. But um, look, it, it's reflective. Hard I suppose, to believe of the that, isn't it? At the moment, it is a small bit. Yeah, yeah, very much so. But look, at, at the same time, it is the support for a farmers' party. It's reflective of the mood of farmers at the moment. Um, you know, and it, it's coming alongside. I suppose a, a drop in support for Fianna Gael and Fianna Fáil. Um, we conduct this poll every kind of six to eight months, and it's verified by IFAC and. Um, just, you know, Fianna Gael there at the moment at 34% um, and Fianna Fáil at 23% and Fianna Gael down, down 4% since December and Fianna Fáil down 3 um, And an interesting one, I suppose, as well, is we this poll is kind of, it will be out of kilter with, say, the national polls. Um, farmers vote differently because, I suppose, they care about different issues. And Sinn Féin at kind of a static 12% there at the moment. They did hit a high of 16% about a year ago. Back in December, they were at 12% and they're now staying at 12% for the moment. Um but the big story here in terms of the, the party votes or the first preference votes is for the independents with a, a big jump in their vote to 24%, so more than Fianna Fáil, say, than the smaller parties, the Sock Dems at 2, Aintu at 2, uh, and look, maybe reflective of how farmers view their performance in government, the Green Party at 1%, along with Labour and People for Profit. So very interesting statistics there. Coming from the farmer, the farming community, um, it's quite a large poll as well. And it's interesting, I suppose, it, it comes at a time and it, when, um, you know, the minister has been rolling out CAP, the, the new CAP and the schemes within it, and a lot of them are quite complex. There's a lot of T's to be crossed and I's to be dotted. Um, and, and farmers, you know, it, it doesn't, even though there's supposed to be money going into their pockets through those schemes, uh, farmers seem dissatisfied with government at the moment. Can we just go back for a second and, and talk about, you mentioned there in passing about uh, the opposition party, of course, Sinn Féin, standing at 10%. Or, sorry, excuse me, 12%, apologies. Um, what's the situation there, do you think? Is it the fact that Sinn Féin don't necessarily try to kind of to play to the farming community in terms of, you know, their their target market, if I was to be as, as coarse as, as to use that term, you know, are, are, are different perhaps than the farmers? Is that why the kind of the farmers are maybe moving then towards, to conflate the question, is that why farmers are maybe moving towards more uh, the independent vote in that they're reticent to support Féin. It's hard to say, Edward. Um, I suppose like anyone voting for anyone, they want to know what they stand for. Um, I suppose on, on the Sinn Féin perspective, you know, they haven't been in government yet and farmers are so, um, I suppose, subject and vulnerable to change, uh, change in markets, change in, you know, the way they do business and I suppose they would be maybe a bit more 
uh, wary of the, not, the unknown than say your general voter and that could be a reason for it um, but it is interesting to see the, the Sinn Féin vote down there at 12% um, kind of out of kilter with how they poll nationally and from a party perspective they made a change in terms of the agricultural spokesperson from Matt Carty TD a former MEP who you could say was was strong in the agricultural brief mm-hmm. and they've given that role now to um, Roscommon Gawi TD Claire Curran um, you could say maybe just you know to Look, McCarthy, one of the more senior players in that party there, um, and it, it seems that that changes. It's, it's an interesting play from from party leader Mary Lou Macdonald. Um, but um, look, it, it remains to be seen will will farmers back um, Sinn Féin before the next general election. For sure. And talk to me um, if the kind of the scope of the of the of the um, survey looked at. Um, talk to me a little bit more about Charlie McConnell so the Minister for Agriculture uh, the survey said that his rating amongst farmers has fallen significantly with only, only one in five farmers believing the Minister is doing a good job is there any correlation between that and their support for uh, Fine Gael or is it that they're unhappy uh, or unimpressed by Minister McConnell as a kind of a, a person and as a, a Minister in his brief yeah, so again, as part of the survey, we regularly, um, you know, the Minister today, the Minister of Agriculture, uh, we asked farmers how they viewed their performance. And at the moment, look at the Minister of Agriculture, Charlie McConlogue, and 46% of farmers' performance as poor or very poor, um, and only one in five at the moment viewing his performance as, as positive. Um, and that's down from one in three back in December. Um, and his performance is viewed, I suppose, worst amongst dairy farmers. And that, again, is reflective of the way milk prices have gone this um this 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 year and the way input costs have remained high um and but again it's interesting to see in a, in a year where he's been maybe opening up the checkbook and handing out the cap schemes and rolling them out um farmers don't seem to be satisfied um you know there a lot of these schemes now they're climate based and they're based on environmental measures and farmers are being asked to pay out to get the money you know you have to invest in mm. the under acres for example it's putting in hedge grows or it's putting in owl boxes and all these things which are good for the environment and farmers are stepping up to, to do um, but it, at the end of the day once you pay out to, to complete the measure the payment you get at the end of the day isn't uh, maybe all that great um, we would have seen for example the rollout of the new um, national beef uh, welfare scheme and there's an, an IBR testing component to it and by the time you pay the vet and need the lab for the testing and all that um, our beef editor Adam Woods kind of crunched the numbers on it and it's working out at about less than €2 Euro per cow so the, the farmers seem to be dissatisfied with the minister at the moment um, and I'm sure look he won't be quite all, all that happy with how he's been rated at the moment I'm sure not nor I'm sure will his uh, will his party leader uh, Leo Varadkar I'm just wondering because we've covered it on this show at length and I know my, my, my colleague to a greater detail Matt O'Keefe on the Casey Law Farm show um, the kind of the whole uh, role of climate change and you mentioned it there in your in your answer with regard to uh, Minister McConnell I mean at the particularly at the start of the kind of the climate change debate farmers were demonised you know and I mean I think that's that's very fair to say that they were demonised now the kind of the narrative has changed a bit to be less so but I think farmers really felt that they were um, you know expected to do the kind of the, the lion's share of the work with regard to you know modifications to their practices with regard to climate change I'm wondering would that have an impact on their uh, impressions of Minister McConnell Logue? Yeah, I suppose look, for any farmer ever listening there at the moment, um, you know, they've probably been out early this morning milking cows up at the crack of dawn, working hard, producing food for the country and for the world, um, whether it's beef, sheep, dairy and so on. 
Um, they might come in then for their 11 o'clock tea there at the moment and hopefully they'll be informed by this discussion but there's often times they might turn on the radio and it's a uh, a debate about climate and uh, an element of farmer bashing you could say particularly on the national airwaves um, and it is frustrating from a farmer's perspective when they are doing their bit they're looking at their own farm and they've their their green hedge grows and they're doing their bit in the environment they're seeing the fox they're seeing the, the wild animals um, the nature out in their farm and then they have some the people in a uh, studio in up in um, South Dublin maybe driving a Range Rover saying that they need to do more on the environment. So it, it can be quite frustrating from that perspective. And we have to remember as well, the farmers are more and more educated. They're one of the most educated workforces in the country at the moment. Mm. Um, you have more and more young people. It's not just a, you know, running a farm is running a business um, and they're business people. And you can see if, if there's constantly that rhetoric coming at them. Um, I suppose look, that's curtailed production. That's the, the key element of it, you know, um, for to, to reduce emissions but they're looking at say the likes of brazil which we reported last week has a plan to really drive on its beef output to the tune of 2.6 million head um just put a lot more cattle into the world market and we all know what's going out on out there in terms of the rainforest that's being cleared for agricultural production um and it's this phenomenon called carbon leakage while you might make savings on emissions here in ireland um, by taking our output out of the market or a reduction in our output um some other country elsewhere is going to is going to fill that gap, and they won't do things as environmentally friendly. So, look, I think you know yourself, Edward. You've probably had your breakfast already this morning, and you'll have a lunch now in a little bit. But you, you need a farmer three times a day for three square meals, and um, I think a, a lot of times the general public don't really remember that. Of course, and we had Blonnet Bergen actually, interestingly, uh, from the business of food on earlier on, and we were talking about environmental health officers, and I suppose more especially the uh, inconsistent application of the food safety laws. And she was making the point about you know the local producers, the local farmers who are producing food, and it's it, it's potentially being replaced by a more homogenous offering um, at the minute. I'm interested, and you mentioned there about that intergenerational involvement uh, in farms and in the farming business. You know, now we're kind of seeing, and I know your survey suggested that 50% of farmers surveyed are open to going organic in the next five years. I suppose increased knowledge and increased education and increased training in terms of the next generation is driving change that will uh, be transformative for the sector out. Absolutely, and you highlighted there that the finding in our survey about the organics, and then another one was fertilizer use. So, in the organics, firstly, fifty percent of farmers said that they were open to converting uh, to organic in the next five years, with seventeen percent of them saying that they would definitely consider it. Um, and as Minister Pippa Hackett said, um, spoke speaking to the Irish Farmers Journal on Thursday, you know that was unthinkable um, a number of years ago, mm-hmm. um, and that interest is strongest among suckler and uh, sheep farmers because their systems are low input anyway. They often would spread far less fertilizer, say, than a tillage or dairy system. Um, and they're finding that, you know, it, it also comes with the, 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 the output, um, you know, what they're getting in terms of the payment at the end of the day. They're seeing that lamb prices and beef prices aren't strong. So they're saying, why would I be spending more on fertilizer and conventional meal when I can maybe put a little bit less and get a premium payment for, from the government then for doing so organically? Um, you know, and it's maybe more young farmers stepping up a plate there to do that. And look, it's about maybe farming a bit more in tune with nature, um, which a lot of farmers do anyway, and they're just going to get a payment from government for doing it organically. Uh, the other side of it was the fertilizer. Um, 50% of, fertilizer, of farmers, survey by the Farmers Journal, 
in July said that they have used um, less fertiliser this year. Um, but the cost of it is prohibitive, isn't it? The cost of fertiliser and it feed has, has really been kind of catapulted into the kind of the public arena with regard to, you know, the complexity of being able to buy it and access it. Absolutely. And look, the, the country moved in such a way that we moved from producing fertiliser here. We see the, the oil factory in Neuros, which used to produce a lot of uh, mm. fertiliser, was, was kind of winded down by government um, for the with the option then of, I suppose, really driven then to, to import fertiliser. And we saw with the war in Ukraine that that was hit immediately and fertiliser prices um, were driven up. With that impact really been seen on farms across the country. Um, and you could say, yes, that maybe farmers last year, because they couldn't afford it or they saw prices go right up, they kind of stepped back and didn't buy as much and maybe saw that they didn't have to buy as much. And maybe that's why um, they've been less this year. But whatever the reason, 50% of them have said that they've used less forty um, percent said they use the same, and just ten percent said that they use more. Um, and of those who use less, twenty three percent said that they have used about twenty percent less than more. So, you know, again, that's um, I suppose look at the lower cost of the farmer, but it also it means that on the emissions front, it brings down the nitrous oxide emissions um, from farms as well. So it's another good thing that the farmers are doing on the environment. Um, and you wouldn't really hear much of the good news stories from the sector in terms of listening to, to some national national media um, but yeah on the organics and the um, the fertiliser and then there was also a finding on forestry where one in yeah. five farmers said that they would plant trees under the new um, government's forestry programme so that's 20% of farmers and that would meet the country's uh, planting targets of if that was facilitated and allowed you know so the appetite is amongst the appetite is there amongst farmers um, to do these things for the environment and they, they very much are stepping up to the plate and with regard to forestry and, forestry and pardon my ignorance if it is so on this you know for people who are indulging uh, in or uh, undertaking this forestry program is that by and large people who are maybe you know downsizing the kind of the workload that they that they would have or is it for kind of you know uh, economic gain or both you could only say maybe look it's you know you could paint it a certain way and say that it's for the love of nature and for um, you know for for, for biodiversity and all that we'll take that that's as red <laughs> <laughs> it, there's a fact that's a, a factor of for sure Edward but there's also I suppose look farmers or business people they have to see how it's going to make money um, and you know provide for the family farm and contribute to the income of the household. So, you know, they have to be incentivized. And there used to be a time where planting a field of trees could act as a pension for mm. a farm family. Um, but because they had the likes of ash dieback and a, a number of different issues with the licensing of forestry um, from the Department of Agriculture, um, it has really, really fallen off the cliff edge in terms of activity and, and planting activity amongst um, the farming community. Look, they've kind of really pushed on now with this forestry program it was launched a bit early uh, you could say a bit premature there in last November by Minister McConnell and Minister Hackett um, and when it all was said and done it actually became apparent that it hadn't been quite approved, the state aid element hadn't been approved by the European Commission and that was just, uh, an element of that was just finalised last week, the forestation aspect, so the planting of trees um, so that's been greenlit and that money can flow to farmers' pockets now. So look, I suppose the ball is back in the court of the Minister and the Department in terms of can they expedite that process. There's an appetite there amongst farmers. They want to plant trees. Um, it could be a farmer, as you said, looking to roll, roll back a small bit and do a bit less and put money aside. It is, uh, the, the payment side of it's attractive. You get a, you know, a, a per year payment and you get a planting premium then as well. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, Look, there's not all that much forestry around County Carroll and Kilkenny, for example. Um, will farmers locally here, um, you know, will they bite the bite the bait on it? Um, but it's yet to be seen. But one in five, anyway, in our survey said that they would. 
For sure. Well, listen, our texter says government parties have to remember that there are many votes in rural Ireland and some seem to have forgotten this. Uh, our texter, who's Marion Dalton, also says congrats to Barry in his new role in the Irish Farmers Journal because, of course, you're Deputy News Editor. So we're joined with Marion in our congratulations. Barry, thanks for giving us um, a, a very comprehensive tour through the survey. It's very interesting, interesting to see whether this new party will emerge. I'm sure our own uh, representatives, John McGuinness, Malcolm Noonan, John Paul Phelan, Kathleen Funk, and Jennifer Murnane O'Connor uh, here in Carlo Kilkenny will be watching this uh, with great interest perhaps as they uh, prepare to uh, head to the doorsteps in the coming years but uh, for now Barry thanks so much and good morning to you Brilliant Edward thanks for having us Barry Murphy their Deputy News Editor of the Irish Farmers Journal telling us all about the study that they took place uh, in during the week now we're going to take a little break and we'll be back just after this the Saturday Show with Edward Hayden. KCLR. With thanks to Lyreth Estate, Kilkenny's luxury hotel. Perfect for spoiling yourself. More details on lyreth.com. Well, good welcome back. The good news is that you're listening. A texter has texted me to say, Edward, Charlie McConnellogue's party leader is Michal Martin, not Leo Varadkar. And you're 100% correct. And I knew that. What I meant was the leader of the government, uh, Leo Varadkar, the Taoiseach. But uh, thank you for uh, that text as well. That was in relation to our conversation around the um, the rating of the current rating of Minister Charlie McConnellogue according to the Farmers server surveyed in the Irish Farmers Journal as well. Um, I understand a CTV camera room at Kilkenny Guard Barracks covers the whole of Kilkenny City. Surely this is showing the goings on uh, by offenders on the street. Edward, uh, drug dealing must also be addressed. Uh, we don't want our city becoming like the Dublin streets uh, with regard to assaults uh, as well, which are currently being uh, broadcasted uh, greatly in the um, in the media. Uh, another says, thanks for bringing our listeners' story to us. And that is what our job here is to do, to talk about what you're talking about, because that's what we find most interesting. Now, uh, you heard Edwina in the ad break there talking about the Carlo Place Names Project. I'm delighted to be joined on the telephone line by Eve Campbell, who's the project coordinator and archaeologist of the Carlo Place Names Project. Good morning, Eve. Good morning, Edward. Uh, lovely to have you on. I am from Grog in the Manoc, uh, the Valley of the Monks, set in the Cistercian settlement of 1204 down in beautiful Gregnamana. Names mean so much and you're going to uh, establish some of the, 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 the place names around Carlo. Yeah, absolutely. Place names are such a rich aspect of our landscape and they really tell us so much, I suppose, about how people in the past have understood places and lived in them and made meaning in them. So the Carlo Place Names Project is a really exciting new initiative to record what we call minor place names. So those are place names below the level of the townland. So I suppose most of us in rural Ireland have a good idea of our townland names um, and they're really, really old place names. You know, they date from the at least the 12th century, probably older. But what we're really interested in is getting down below the level to minor place names. So things like field names or names of rocks or names of rivers or um, indeed in the, in the urban environment, we're thinking of like lanes and alleyways and that kind of thing. So how are you going to establish what these are? Um, is this from kind of uh, local intelligence or how is this going to be worked out, Eve? Yeah, so 
these kind of place names are a little bit different than townland names. So townland names are um, they're mapped and they're in the historical record from an early um, an early period. But um, a lot of minor place names are different. They're oral, so they're they're, they're in the name in the memories of local communities. So if you think particularly about things like field names, they're they're in they're used by farmers in the farming community. Or um, previously, I've worked on a, a project up in the Cooley Mountains for the sheep farmers have all different names for different parts of the mountains to help them navigate. So what we're going to do is we're going to hold a series of free public workshops um, during August and early September. And we're going to get volunteers together and people together. And we're going to um, basically do some oral history and get people to write down the names that they know for their local landscapes around Carlow Town. Lovely. And I'm sure there is a lot of kind of local intelligence around this and people maybe don't necessarily appreciate the value of it because they're just names that are kind of part of their everyday vernacular. You're absolutely, you're 100% uh, right there, Edward. So we all use these names and many rural people use these names all the time in our lives. When I was a child, I have these great memories of the the field names I used to play in up in in County Loud. And you don't really think about them twice. They're just part of your Mm. everyday landscape. But but they are very significant because they tell us about the history, the micro histories of those landscapes. Um, And the thing about them too, they're very vulnerable. So if particularly the older generation would have these would curate and um, look after these place names and when they pass away often large um, numbers of field names and place names can be lost with them so there's an aspect of that to the project as well in kind of trying to get down on paper what's what's very much an oral uh, culture um, in terms of these smaller place names in advance of our conversation, I was just thinking when you had uh, accepted our invitation to speak with us, I was thinking of my late father who in the past had a bit of land and I remember he used to put sheep over in a field called the Slough. Now we knew it as exactly where it was, but uh, we never knew why. And of course now that knowledge is gone with, with his passing. So uh, timely to get all the information uh, documented. How can people help you, um, Eve? Yeah, so um, people can come along to one of our three free public workshops. So the initial phase of the project is going to focus on the land around Carlow Town. Um, and we're having these three free public workshops on Tuesday the 27th of August, Tuesday the 29th of August and Tuesday the 5th of September. And the first one will be in Carlow Library and the second two will be in Palatine GA um, Club Hall. So people are very welcome to come along to those uh, workshops and we'll be doing mapping there as well and we'll be talking about place names and thinking about what their names mean. Um, of course, there's great linguistic diversity in, in Ireland's ones. So we have ones from Irish, ones from English, ones from medieval um, names for different things. Or people can get in touch with me uh, directly. Um, you can send me an email at eve.campbell at ams-consultancy.com and I'll, I'll, get, I'll get back and get in touch and let people know how they can get involved. And I can concur that you do get in touch when people contact you on that email as I, uh, as I did. Eve, I think I, I envy you and I don't envy you. It's a, it's a mammoth task, but an interesting task. And I think the kind of the linguistics around it, uh, will certainly, uh, give it even a more yeah, rich and varied. I mean, absolutely. Carlo is such a fascinating, you know, it's such a fascinating time with a really rich history. And things like medieval landscapes are something, you know, that can very much pop out of these kind of minor place name studies. People might have named that they don't necessarily um, it, you wouldn't necessarily know the significance of but they can they can date back quite a long time 
For sure. Well, listen, Eve, continued good wishes with it um, as you coordinate uh, this project. I'm sure that um, the results will be very interesting. Perhaps you might come back on when the kind of the map has been drawn up and we might kind of uh, tease out some of the kind of the the details that you've covered. But for now, good wishes, Eve, and good morning. Thank you, Edward. Thanks so much. Bye. Now, that's Eve Campbell there, who is the project coordinator and archaeologist. Carlo Place Names Project, uh, a really interesting project. Uh, I do believe. Now we're going to take a break and we're going to invite three ladies of high drama into the studio just after this. Fun and show. This Saturday show with Edward Hayden. KCLR. With thanks to Lyrath Estate, Kilkenny's luxury hotel. Perfect for spoiling yourself. More details on Lyrath.com. Hello, Kilkenny, KCLR. Now, Tafal Sherash, you're very welcome back to the Sashda Show. Edward Hayden here with you. 0833069696 is our dinnersready.ie uh, contact line. Margaret Minchin has been on. She says, Hi, Edward, great show. What do you think of the name Kulna Kapog or the Snowy Vale Kulna Schnachta? And of course, very familiar with it all. I was actually just, uh, as I was driving in this morning, I was just looking on the car because it documents where you're driving through. And as I was leaving, we had Milltown, Pulla, Townahaw, Court Nabakala, and uh, lots more as well. And uh, all very interesting names when you're going through. Uh, hi, Edward. Well done. We all love your Saturday morning programme. So informative and up to date on local issues. Continued success. And the local issue that we're discussing this morning, of course, is the antisocial behaviour as documented in this week's Kilkenny Observer's letter to the editor as well. Just before we go to the ladies of drama, a very interesting text, uh, sorry, uh, also um, Emma has texted in, herself and her daughter were in Quilta, Quilty this time last year during the heatwave. Today it's cloudy and cold and they sent me a beautiful picture of themselves as well. A long text, but I'm going to read it quickly because I think it's worthy of inclusion in the show. Good morning, Edward. Uh, love the show. Breath of air on a Saturday morning. If you get a chance to read this out, it'd be great. Last Thursday, I was in Dunn's in McDonough. I'd forgotten my phone and wallet, but luckily enough, I had two gift cards and a small amount of cash. I reached the checkout with a queue behind me. Seemingly, I needed to know exactly the amount on each of those gift cards. I only had an idea as I had used them earlier in the centre. Anyway, two extremely kind ladies came to my aid. One lady offered me her Dunn's vouchers and another lady offered to pay the balance for my groceries and said I could repay whenever. I had no idea who either of these ladies were but I just want to thank them for their kindness to a stranger. I eventually or should I say the manager sorted the situation but my faith in humanity has been restored. Thank you ladies, whoever you were um, and thank you is the message as well. And listen our faith in humanity does get restored. Um from time to time and it's good to have that faith in humanity. Now uh, faith of course is a very interesting word and a very interesting segue to our next piece because I'm delighted to be joined by the members of the Cats Theatre um, group who are getting ready to put on their production of Patricia Burke Brogan's Eclipsed at the Watergate Theatre um, I'm delighted to be joined by Delia Lowry, who is the director of this um, mammoth piece, and also by Linda Beale, who's playing the part of Sister Virginia, and by Edwina Cummins, who's playing the part of Mandy. Good morning to you all. Good morning. Um, Delia, I'll start with yourself first in uh, in the purposes of the kind of the food chain. We must always start with uh, with the director. Tell me about the the kind of the the piece in general. It's Patricia Burke Brogan, of course, is well known 
female author who documented a kind of a, a muddy past, but in a kind of um, a jocular way. Yeah, yeah, she's... Um some very fantastic pieces of writing several um, which actually document as you said she uh, she herself actually went on to train as a nun and was a postulant nun with the sisters in um, Galway and Forrester Street mm-hmm. and um, so she spent some time in the convent and she got moved into the Magdalene Laundry and it was within in this Magdalene Laundry where she served I think it was the guts of a year or two and um, she was so um, unenamored by the way mm. that women were treated within in the Magdalene Laundry that she kind of started to fight back and then decided you know what this isn't for me and she stepped out of becoming a nun and uh, she went on then pursuing her interest in art and creative writing and wrote this play Eclipsed um, so it's quite well known that Eclipsed is actually based on her own experiences and that the part of Sister Virginia that is being played by our Linda Beale here um, is actually you know, in essence, her mm. when she was training. It was really interesting, I thought, and we, I was sitting in for um, the Casey Law Live at the time for the two weeks when it was really a heightened sense, the mother and baby um, home, you know, report when that came out. And it was so interesting to hear the independent TD from Galway West, Catherine Connolly, yeah. mention and cite Patricia Burke Brogan and the work that she had done. She put her alongside, um, you know, Catherine Corliss in terms yeah. of, you know, pioneers in terms of uh, raising awareness. So it was so important and relevant that she yeah. mentioned her in her contribution. And she was definitely was a pioneer. Like when she actually brought this on, um, majority of theatre companies wouldn't actually take on this play because it was so anti the church and so speculative. Um, she herself actually received a lot of hate mail. Um, when Punchbag Theatre took it on, they were a fledgling group way back in 94, I think it was, 92 or 94. And um, they, uh, when they were, they were putting it on in the Town Hall Theatre, there were actually mobs of people outside protesting this, um, which is just unfortunate. But she soldiered on. And uh, and rightfully so, because by highlighting it, it allowed a voice. And in anything like this, with Eclipse, it's a voice for women. It's a voice for um, what women do endure and what we still endure today. Um, and Eclipse itself is quite relevant even to, in today's terms. Um, as you said, like with the mother and baby home, like I personally actually rang nearly every TD in the country, um, asked them to vote against the bill of, um, of uh, putting that information away for the next 30 mm-hmm. odd years um, but uh, it's so relevant today like even like we look at the the more recent like what five years ago the case up in the north with um, the rugby players and the girl that was sexually assaulted mm-hmm. um, and the manner it was such a div- division in the country on how some people said well it was her fault you know she had it coming she was looking for it and others then were kind of saying well actually no you shouldn't be tarnishing the name of this person or these people these rugby players you're destroying their future Um, and that is so relevant in the respect of back then women were put away for deeds that were committed against them for sure Um, and we still do that as a society we often can pigeonhole women into being the um kind of in a roundabout way as much as they're the victim they're kind of the perpetrator in their own right because they shouldn't have behaved in a certain manner or maybe they shouldn't have walked that road or they shouldn't have said so and so forth 
So, um, and the blame is alongside the, the crime. And sometimes, of course, art and theatre gives us the opportunity to explore that. We'll look at that again in just a second. We'll move on to some of our cast members. Uh, Linda Beale uh, in front of me is playing the part of Sister Virginia, who is that young postulant who is um, the, the author as we turn out. Linda, good morning to you. Alinda, talk to me about the role. Talk to me about kind of the, the, the role of Sister Virginia because it is a role that I suppose brings great heft to the play and it's kind of like that, that moral conscience. It's the kind of the good cop sitting on the soldier of the, of the play. Talk to me about your, your, your uh, enjoyment of playing the part or getting yeah, your teeth well, into it. It's a very challenging role for me. Um, I haven't ever played a part like this before. Um, but I feel um, it's an important it's an important role to to get to get to do um i suppose um in my acting career um so she's landed in the laundry um she's very young and naive i suppose you could say and um she's faced with these women who obviously are very you know hurt and and I don't know what else to say traumatised that's the word Delia thanks she's very they're very traumatised and she can't understand why they're there without their children their children have been taken away why they're locked away so she has kind of a crisis of faith kind of saying but God is is meant to be a loving father a forgiving father like why are they kept in here kind of so she's she's kind of losing her faith a little in 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 the whole scheme of things but she pursues on and anyway and you'd have to see what happens yeah, I'm not going I'm to give anything away no I but can she's see lovely that, yeah. she's, she's really nice to the girls and she's hurting herself she is seeing she is. What, what's happening to them and kind of can't understand how this is happening and we can see from the text and seeing from from previous portrayals of of the part that I've seen you know we can see how that kind of you know battle of conscience and the struggle that that does Um, there's a gorgeous I'm really looking forward to seeing the production but a gorgeous scene of course where she um, visits uh, Mother Victoria in her cloister as well so I think that's a gorgeous scene and I think it it epitomises I suppose the the social context of of the piece as well Uh, Mandy, I was going to say, Edwina Cummins <laughs> is also with us, who you are playing the part of one of the, the penitent women. Now, when I first saw this um, production in the Watergate, probably a hundred years ago, Cathy Belton played the part. I was telling Delia in, in Limerick recently. Cathy Belton played the part of um, Sister Virginia. And um, what I really liked about it at the time, and I'll come back to Delia in just a second, you know, this is a piece, obviously it's a piece of great gravitas, but, you know, you could layer it with with even more uh, emotional depth if you wanted. But what I really liked about it was the penitence, there's plenty of spark in them as well, um, Edwina, isn't there? Tell us about Mandy. There is, um, Mandy, without giving too much away, I, I, I really like her, I'm really drawn to her. I'm going to say she's the fun one. Yeah, she <laughs> and is. Now they all are fun, obviously, but every... And she's a bit bold and sparky. She is. She, she, yeah. <laughs> I don't know how you got the part. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's no similarities at all, really. Um, I don't know what Daniel was thinking. Um, no, she is. She's a lovely character. She's a fun character. She's got a lot going on, uh, which you learn throughout For the sure. play. So, But initially, you're just like, oh, this is a crazy person. Like, she's lovely and bubbly. But, um... I think that's part of the the joy of this play is that 
even despite the very divisive subject matter, it is about these women and they all have different personalities and it's about how they support each other and come together and get through what I can only imagine is a horrific experience and just how they work together, the personalities work together and Mandy's just a lot of fun to play, she really Mm. is. And I'm really looking forward to seeing your your portrayal of her. Um, There's going to be a no pressure. show stealer. She's, a, she's yeah. She listen, come here tonight. Tell you if you're on, if she's on a check in your ticket, she's stealing. Yeah. The <laughs> so imagine what she's going to be like on the stage. Uh, Delia, I'll go back to yourself with that point. You said you said earlier on in your in your opening contribution that you know theatre companies were reticent to take yeah. it on, obviously because of the message around it. From a directorial point of view, there's a lot of reasons putting aside the content. There's a lot of reasons why a director would be reticent to take it on. It is a mammoth piece. It poses, you know, a, a multiplicity of challenges to a director and to an ensemble. Yeah. Talk to us about how you've navigated oh, those. Gosh. Right. So Briefly. So in, 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 like, I suppose <laughs> I'm, first, I'm first looking at the piece. Um, superficially, it seems like a really simple piece. Mm. And, you know, when you, st- as a director, as you start exploring through the text and breaking it down, you realise, as you said, that multifaceted, um, multi-layered aspect that's within it. Each character is an individual, as Edwina just said, and you're breaking down those characters um, and how their arc happens throughout the play. Like Edwina just um, uh, hinted at the fact that um, Mandy is quite a bubbly character and the joy and the fun and the spark but there's so many layers to Mandy mm-hmm. like she's actually a really fractured person and she puts on this amazing happy face and she kind of lights up the room but underneath it all she's a duck on a pond you know and the legs are going 90 the brain is going 90 she's making the best of a bad lot like anybody does in life um, and each individual like so Linda herself um, is a uh, she has her side of the story where she comes in bright and bubbly, ready to change the world, realising she's actually caught in the system. Mm. So we have that going on, but then we have um, the religiosity that's there for Ireland as a whole. Like, we all grew up saying our prayers, and uh, there's a lovely scene near the end of the play where um, to really um, hone through how much our religion is there and how insidious it is where um, Sister Virginia is actually saying prayers and despite what's going on in that scene the girls just answer Amen and they continue praying with her although there's opportunities for them to stay and go and they stay there they're institutionalised there's just so many layers like the, mm. there's, there's the theme of of revenge of hate there's sad going on there's imprisonment there's um, religion obviously there's historical abuse although I will really I really want to put forward as did Patricia Burke Brogan she never saw any degree of abuse in the laundry that she was in and um, was quite horrified at the dramatisation that was put forward by other groups and other films and programmes and you see in that you know there is the capacity or the risk that a director or a team could project all of the other information on the narrative that's in front of them yes Mm -hmm. isn't there Yeah, so like kind and of decisions have to be kind of cleverly taken. Decisions have to be made, like kind of. Um, so uh, Paula Drohan is playing Mother Victoria, and um, there have been instances where Mother Victoria has been played as this real angry, horrendous, horrific, abusive, mm. stringent person. Mm. Um, but Paul and I had a big chat about it, and we we're kind of saying she's not that. 
she's not this angry person. There's more to her. And it's those questions where we're finding that 3D depth, if not mm. a 5D depth in the yeah. character, because... Uh, like I, I, it's a bit like uh, Gilead in um, the Handmaid's Tale. That she's their ward. Yes, she is um, driven by religion and the belief that she is doing good here, and she's aligning these women um, so that they can enter the kingdom of heaven. And in several p- cases, there's a point where the girls turn around and call this space purgatory. Mm. Um, so in a way, they're atoning for their sins in the institution, but. She also cares for them in her own weird and wonderful mm. way. Um, and her strictness is like a real strict mammy that's trying yeah. to keep you on the path she's of goodness. Doing, she's and doing her best. It's, and it's that difficulty on ensuring that that comes across, that it's not just this shouty, mean, horrendous person. Yeah, it's, I agree. There's more to her and for each character, because as I said, superficially, when you read it, it actually comes, it's, it can look a little bit too 2D. Yeah, yeah. But when you yeah, it's light. And then you kind of think, geez, there's not a lot in this. And then when you start digging, you go, oh, wow. <laughs> Come here, listen, there we must leave it, I'm afraid. Uh, I'm conscious that I have to hit the news at 12 o'clock uh, because it's the national news. Uh, it's on August 31st, August, uh, September the 1st and September the 2nd at 7.30, 7.30 in the yeah. Washgate. Booking on 0567761674 or on washgatetheatre.com. Yeah. Lovely. I'm so looking forward yeah. to seeing it. I think you're super uh, to take it on. The best of good luck. Three Thank lovely you. ladies in front of me, joined by much more who you'll see the night in the Washgate. Let's take a break. KCLR. Now that brings me to the end of this morning's show. Davy Cashin is getting ready. He's tuning himself up. He'll be coming up to you next there. He's on the, the dumbbells inside in studio number one, flexing himself up for you. Thanks so much to Amy. I'll be back with you uh, next. When will I be back with you? I'll be better to you next Saturday morning if the Lord spares me until then. But for now, folks, uh, thanks for listening and God bless.